When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Peoples and Things, where we explore human life with technology. I'm Lee Vinsel. It's a truism in science and technology studies that groups often build politics directly into technologies. Most often, this involves dominant groups designing technologies in ways that favor their own interests and exclude others. In science and technology studies classes, we often use Langdon Winner's famous essay, Do Artifacts Have Politics?, to introduce students to this idea. Though I am on the team of folks who believe it is a shame that we have this habit as I'll explain in a moment. Winner's essay, which was first published in 1980, contains a famous example that has been repeated ad infinitum over the years. In it, renowned and infamous city planner Robert Moses decided to build bridges over a Long Island highway so low that buses could not pass them. The idea was that Moses did this to keep poor, especially poor black people, off the beautiful beaches he had designed. We can think of it as Moses' racist bridges. Now, the problem is that there has always been doubts about whether this story about Moses and his bridges was in fact true. Winner took the story from a biography of Moses and appears to have done no work to verify it, which is pretty common of his work during that period, which generally relied on little to no empirical sleuthing or social scientific digging. You can find skepticism about the truthfulness of Winner's example in another essay, Do Politics Have Artifacts? by Bernward Georges. And when I taught science and technology studies at Stevens Institute of Technology in Hoboken, New Jersey, I had students from Long Island say things like, dude, I have seen buses go down that road with my own eyeballs. And here's why I think it's unfortunate that we continue to teach students about technology and politics using that winner essay, because I believe that some areas of science and technology studies have continued traditions of empirical weakness. Indeed, that's part of what this podcast is meant to counter. I try to highlight thinkers who do strong and interesting empirical work. But it seems obviously true that inequalities, including racial inequalities, are built right into the infrastructures and technological systems that surround us. 
Indeed, that has been the subject of previous episodes of this podcast, including the interviews with Daniel Armanios and Destiny Knock. But how do we study, and importantly to my mind, demonstrate how racist, classist, and other ideological visions get built into such systems? In a series of articles, today's guest, Connor Harrison, Associate Professor of Geography and the School of Earth, Ocean, and Environment at the University of South Carolina, has done just that, using archival sources, geographic information systems techniques, and other methods, Harrison examines how white folks in control of electrical and lighting system in southern U.S. cities built them in ways that favored their own interests and excluded and disfavored those of black people, which had long-term consequences probably right down to today. Connor and I also talk about how he got into this work and what he's been working on more recently. And it's funny, I was e-introduced to Connor by geographer Liz Hennessy 10 years ago. I looked it up today. So it was especially fun to finally connect to Connor and talk to him about his good work. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hey, get excited. Connor, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Uh, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Uh, I was thinking we might start our conversation by focusing on your article, Race, Space, and Electric Power, Jim Crow, and the 1934 North Carolina Rural Electrification Survey. So tell us a bit about that piece. Uh, what does the survey allow us to see about the themes you wanted to get into? Uh, yeah, so the the piece itself it it came out of uh, my dissertation work, um, which you know started from you know after doing my master's, which looked at this question of energy poverty or energy vulnerability. Um, I just found that that you know like a lot of things that started to open up a lot of more questions, um, including specifically, you know, there was this really uneven pricing and uh, electricity systems across the eastern part of North Carolina compared to the big investor owned utilities. And so, um, you know, scratching the surface, as I did kind of in my, my master's about some of the reasons for that, I wanted to investigate more. And what that then led me to was, um, just kind of opening up the insane world of electric utilities, um, all of the different varieties, all the different ways that they're regulated or not regulated, mm -hmm. um, and all the kind of questions that come from that. So I just had a, this question of, okay, so where did this system come from, you know, that, that we kind of take for granted today in some ways. Times is kind of invisible, uh, but it's getting much more visible, I think, in a lot of people's lives yeah. um, at times. Um, and I think along the way, I, I was really fortunate. Um, so I just had that kind of basic question. Um, I was fortunate along the way in my graduate program that uh, some of my um, colleagues, a lot of whom have gone on to be sort of really key figures in the in study of black geographies, um, pushed me and said, you know, there's got to be something else going on here. It's not just kind of your basic political economy uh, story. Hmm. And, you know, it is a political economy story in a lot of ways. But they, they, you know, 
as they started to encourage me to think about it, I started to think about some of these overlaps of sort of the progressive era of Jim Crow um, and um, how that overlapped with the, you know, the rollout of electricity systems in the U.S., this early part of the 20th century. And um, it was kind of with that that I, I would go to the archives. All this work was archival and and just kind of have that in my mind. Right. Mm -hmm. And just, you know, how, where can I see this? How can I see this? Um, and sort of in the end, I found way more, uh, than, uh, than I wanted to. And, um, I felt like uncovered some pretty interesting stories, I guess. Yeah, you sure did, man. And, um, so what, for this article in particular, where, where were the archives? I mean, what, what, where were you doing the research for it? Sure. So a lot of this one came from um, the state of North Carolina archives in Raleigh, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. um, they have a big archive. And um, as I was, you know, they have a big collection on the rural electrification of the state. Um, and, you know, there's lots of tons and tons of documents in there. Yeah. Um, and what I kept finding uh, was references to this survey. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the sort of early stuff I was looking at, they were talking about the survey and I thought, oh, it'd be really interesting to, um, find the survey or find the results, you know, this book that they published. And so I found the book and then I was like, it'd be really interesting if I could find, um, you know, the data that they used on this. Well, I found, you know, thousands and thousands of boxes of the raw you know, material yeah. um, that the surveyors, I found all the instructions that they gave to the surveyors. I found all this correspondence about it. Um, and it was sort of in, in digging in there that, you know, I found this, this kind of how this survey was done. Um, and I mean, I can go into that if, if you want. Yeah. Yeah. Well, go for it. People. Okay. Yeah. So the survey itself, what, what it was meant to do it was put together by a guy named uh, David Weaver, who was a, a professor at North Carolina State University and was over their extension service, their agricultural extension service. And he kind of headed up North Carolina's rural electrification, which actually predates the federal program right. by about a year. Mm -hmm. um, Weaver went on to work for the federal program. Okay. Um, and so this, I think, was a little bit of a, a test case for how they could decide where they were going to roll out electricity lines in the state. Um, so what the survey was meant to do is it went basically house to house along rural roads um, and surveyed, you know, households about and collected just, I think I looked earlier, it was 26 different data points. They surveyed over 25,000 households across the state. So it's a really yeah. massive undertaking. Um, and, and part of it was kind of a back to work program during the depression uh, to find employment for for some of these surveyors but what they what they ended up looking at is collecting all this data about the houses themselves um you know uh how big it was if they had farm animals how many farm animals how many acreage how much acreage they had devoted to different crops and so on and then they asked questions like if you had electricity would you use an iron or would you use a refrigerator or would you use these different different things um and then so they took all this information and, you know, in, this, in the instructions, you can see how they would then assign, okay, this person says that they're going to use an iron, so that's worth one kilowatt hour a month. Mm -hmm. And they kind of add it all up. Um, 
and then assign a certain amount of electricity use to that home. Well, the other thing that they collected um, was the type of, I guess, the, the, the housing tenure. So if it was owned or rented, um, as well as the race of the, of the occupant. Um, they also gave a grade, like an A, B, C, D grade to the, um, to the condition of the house, as well as to the quality of the interview. Um, and this was kind of like, is this the house look nice or was the person seem forthright or truthful? Um, and what is, what was sort of the, the, the big finding I think for this, this paper was that they, so they had collected all this information, um, and said, you know, X house is going to use a hundred kilowatt hours a month or whatever. And then they used, um, the fact the, if they were, the house was rented or owned, and they had this kind of matrix as, and then they used the race of the householder. Um, and then using that, they created this matrix and based on the grade, they would then assign this number that they called the correction factor. And basically what the correction factor says is that if you were white and a homeowner and they thought the condition of your house was good and the, um, the, the quality of the interview was good, they would multiply that number that they calculated by one, so it would stay the same. Uh, if you were uh, a black tenant farmer, even if they thought that the condition of the house was great and the quality of the interview was good, they would then multiply that electricity usage by 0.8. Um, so, you know, all things being equal, just for the fact of kind of, you know, the race of the, of the occupant of the house, they were systematically lowering the amount of electricity that these, um, these houses would consume in their, their calculations. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, why does this matter then is that they looked and they had along each of these lines and then a lot of the lines, you know, and this is in, uh, the Eastern part of North Carolina, um, Edgecombe County, which is where Rocky Mount is located. Um, along these lines that had a, a large number of African Americans, they were sort of systematically lowered, um, in the ranking of how much electricity they were consumed. And therefore quite likely when they went to build the lines, those places were going to receive lower priority for receiving, uh, electrification. Right. It's pretty amazing, man. I mean, and so you see, I mean, is it just like, no, you, I mean, do you see reflections on race in these records you were looking on? Not just, it's not just a box to check, right? That's right. Yeah. I mean, very much so. They, you know, they, um, you know, spoke uh, pretty extensively um, about it. One of the other um, things that I, I, I drew on was um, this interesting uh research that was done by a sociologist at 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 uh at University of North Carolina back in the 19 late 1920s early 1930s named Wiley Sanders and this was in a different archive uh but he asked all these different government agents you know government representatives um extension agents um all sorts of different sort of elected officials about their opinions on race um and you know these are the people that were creating these surveys that were administering these surveys and the 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 sort of views that they had you know when they and when they were allowed to anonymously give them um were really just abhorrent yeah um, 
So it's, you know, the likelihood that you would even be able to get an A, right, as your, as your grade was, was really low, um, just based on the people who were out there kind of surveying you. Yeah. So you're a geographer, and I'm embarrassed to say that I, you might be the first geographer I've had on the show so far. So, uh, but can you say, can you tell us a bit about how, um, this piece fits into a kind of like larger conversations going on in geography for people who don't kind of don't know that field very well. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, there's, you know, geography, I think is, um, you know, there's, you can think about it in terms of kind of physical geography, which is very much, uh, you know, things like environmental science, how water, you know, moves through the environment. Um, you don't think a lot about people. Um, there's GI science, which is using GIS mapping um, to kind of, you know, actually physically map things. And I actually use a little bit of yeah. GIS in this paper, uh, just sort of. Um, so there's historical GIS, which takes older documents and, and digitizes them and brings them up to not necessarily up to date, but allows you to visualize some um, things that happened in the past. And then there's this whole other world of kind of human geography, which can be broken into any variety of subsets like, you know, economic geography, uh, cultural, you know, on and on. Um, I'm sort of somewhere between a, a, an economic, cultural um, geographer, I would say, mm-hmm. um, and I think where where I sort of fit most is is in what's kind of known as energy geography. Um, and you know, there's been some work in the last you know decade, decade and a half that's started to look at these questions of energy and how space is involved, right? Because you know that's one of the things that um, geographers are concerned about. So both in how um, energy sort of produces particular types of landscapes Mm -hmm. um, that we see as well as vice versa right how our energy systems are shaped by the landscapes in which they're you know embedded in Mm -hmm. Um, so i think broadly it fits in there um, where these where my work has kind of been i think sought or found inspiration is by you know geographers that have tried to dig a little bit deeper and not just think about energy as a um as a variable or as a, you know, a raw material that, that we study, but think about how energy is part of the, you know, underlies or, or, or supports the social theories that we use. Um, so in this, this particular article, I draw on actually some anthropologists who use this idea of energy, energy power, energy power. Yeah. I don't know. I've never known how to say that either. <laughs> I know. I don't either. <laughs> um, it's, yeah. Uh, so it's, um, but, you know, thinking about the energetic basis of, of, of our social theories and that this is something that, you know, people like um, uh, uh, Matt Huber, who's at Syracuse, has written a few books um, looking about oil, looking at oil. Um, you know, non-geographers are also doing this work. Yeah. Um, uh, Timothy Mitchell, for example, his work on carbon democracy and uh, Dipesh Chakrabarty uh, has done some work on this, you know, so rethinking kind of how energy fits into kind of our modern society. And I think also kind of the making of our modern society, yep. which is kind of where I'm interested in here. Yeah. And so how did you get started down the road doing this work? I mean, did, you did a master's degree on energy poverty. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. So I... Um, 
So I did my master's at East Carolina University. I'm a North Carolina native, okay. um, and my partner is from the eastern part of the state. She's from uh, Kinston, North Carolina, which is a small town. Um, and you know, we were in Greenville, which is about 45 minutes from from Kinston. And, and I went to uh, you know for my master's, thinking I was going to be an urban planner. Um, and pretty quickly figured out kind of what it was that geographers did, you know, what, what professors do, mm-hmm. uh, and suddenly, you know, kind of became very much interested in that. And one of the things that was always, you know, kind of on my mind was, um, you know, my partner's mother is, is a school teacher, um, single mother, um, and was always talking about how expensive it was to heat and cool her house. Yep. And, uh, the, the bills that she would then describe were just astronomical. She used fuel oil for heating. This is like 2007, 2008 oil prices at an all time high. Um, and so it was just, this sort of thing was kind of in the the back of my mind. Um, when it came time to pick a thesis topic, I was just using academic search engines and typed in the two terms, energy and poverty. And I uh, came across an article by a guy named Stefan Buzarovsky, which was looking at this in um, uh, Eastern Europe and post-socialist Eastern Europe. I read it and was just like, this is what I want to do. Um, and thought that, you wow. know, looked around, nobody had done anything like this in, in the U.S. or in specifically in North Carolina. And I thought it'd be perfect kind of opportunity to dig in. Yeah. And so you have a, an, an article um, uh, from like 2011. And I think I mistyped down the t- title. It's because like you have to have heat. Is that what it's called? Yeah, you, you got to have heat. You got it. Yeah. To, yeah. And so that was um, comes out of the, the work that I did on that, the field work that I did. And that was primarily, um, you know, in-depth interviews with people who were who had received uh, weatherization assistance from mm-hmm. the weatherization assistance program. So increasing the energy efficiency of houses. Um, and that was, you know, really sort of eye opening for me, um, you know talking to people about their experiences with energy and thinking about how it's this mix of kind of the energy system, right? Which in the Eastern part of the state is, was, was, is uh, pretty screwed up, uh, but also kind of their housing situation. A lot of people living in mobile homes uh, as well as um, you know, they're kind of what we call personal biographies. So, mm-hmm. you know, the, the life situation that people find themselves in. Um yeah, it's funny. We, uh, I've had so one of my guests I had on was Destiny Knock. She's a yes, okay. She's um, uh, she's an engineering professor at Carnegie Mellon, or at least was when we chatted. And you know, she's been working on energy poverty. I mean, there's folks out there. It's like a topic, but it's not big. And the well, the reason I'm I'm going down this line of thought is it's something you kind of mentioned in, in that paper yours is I feel like, you know, especially if you're a New York Times reader, we hear about climate change and climate policy all the time. And I know there, what I'm about to, there are people who are thinking about how climate policy is going to affect the poor, but I don't actually see it covered that often. And meanwhile, I mean, as your piece and, uh, you know, destiny and other people, there's real climate or real energy poverty out there, right? I mean, this is a real issue already you know, before we start doing climate things and potentially raising prices. So, yeah, it's it's a pretty big deal. Yeah. And I, I will say, uh, I mean, this is the benefit of getting older, right? I think the attention to it has really um, increased. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
certainly since since I started doing it. Um, you know, just this maybe a year or two ago, um, you know, there's this idea of a just transition, which yeah. is primarily thinking about labor, but I think it also is applicable to um, thinking about low-income households, um, particularly as we enter this era of the, you know, Inflation Reduction Act and the IRA. Um, you know, so many of our kind of our, our ways that we're trying to incentivize people to, to use solar on their house or to get a heat pump. Yeah. It's all around tax credits. Um, yeah. And not exclusively. I know that there's other, other, uh, but that's what you hear about um, is, you know, Oh, you can get a rebate, you can get a tax credit, yeah. you can do this. Um, I, I'm involved in a project right now that's funded by the Sloan foundation. Um, and we're actually going back um, and doing some of the work that, that I was doing. We're doing uh, interviews with um, low-income folks in South Carolina and, and Tennessee. And uh, some of the stories that we're hearing, you know, about the, the you know, it, it's so far away from the sorts of uh, things that you hear commonly associated with the IRA about how it's going to help, Yeah, you know decarbonize i mean these are people who are living you know without running water yeah uh, without you know any source of heat yeah. who, you know suffer kind of disconnections constantly mm -hmm. um, so real challenges um, that people are facing yeah so so is part of Part of why you moved into the historical research, I'm just kind of trying to chart out your career. So you get this master's, there's this 2011 piece that comes out of that. And then, I mean, were you, were you starting to think about like the historical processes that led to the situation that you had studied in your master's? Is that kind of how your thinking developed? Yeah, very much so. Okay. Um, that was that was kind of I was like, okay, how did this happen? Yeah, I knew that there. I had learned along the way that there was this um, really uneven electricity pricing in the eastern part of the state. A lot of that was rooted in um, that there are these municipal electricity systems in North Carolina. So just like you know, the city might provide you with water or trash, they they are the 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 company that you buy your electricity yep. from. In the early 1980s, these municipal electricity systems invested in a big nuclear power project in North Carolina, the Sharon Harris nuclear power plant. Um, if you know anything about kind of your nuclear history, um, it was a plant that was way over budget. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, much, much later than it was supposed They're to be. Expensive. Kind of yeah. Very expensive. I think they initially... You know, the overall project was going to be $1 billion for four reactors, and they got one reactor for four. Oh, um, shit. <laughs> oh, that's bad. <laughs> yeah, so not so good. Um, wow. And, you know, it was sort of a co-investment with the with uh, the utility. It's now part of uh, Duke Energy, but called okay. Carolina Power and Light. Um, but the way that it was structured is that these municipalities all were going to pay this off, pay this debt off that they accrued um, through their electricity bills. Um, and then once you, uh, so they started doing this um, and it was based on, so they were paying off, paying it off based on the size of the city, the size of the um you know, so some of the towns ranged from, you know, something like Rocky Mount, where I did some of my research is on the big side. It's about 70,000. Yeah. There's, I remember there was one town called Hobgood, tiny little town, uh, 900 people had invested in this. Um, so they all had a certain amount of debt that they had to pay off. And then that was just basically spread out 
along their electricity consumers. Um, and what's sort of notable is that some of these cities um, actually had significant declines in their population. For example, Kenston, um, or my partner's from, started with a population of about 30,000 when they made the investment. Uh -huh. uh, by the time I was working on it, it was, a, you know, they'd lost about a third of the people there. Yeah. It's down to about 20,000 people. Yeah. Um, other places, kind of some of the suburbs outside of Raleigh, like Apex and Wake Forest, went from like you know two thousand to like one hundred fifty thousand, and it wasn't such a big deal. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Not, maybe not one hundred fifty thousand, but you know, significantly bigger. Yeah. Um. So, uh, so this was crippling. Um, yeah. You know, so your electricity rates would be fifty. 60, 70, 80% higher than what it would be if you were from the, the investor-owned utility. Um, wow. You know, had big impacts on these towns for a long time. Yeah. That's wild, man. And so was part of what you were interested in is the development of that kind of municipal electricity system? Like, why, why, why are these things the thing that, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And that, that was very much it. Um, you know, so there's, I was like, oh, there are these municipal systems. Oh, there are these rural electric cooperatives. Oh, there's the yeah. know, investor owned utilities. Um, you know, and, you know, and it's sort of along the way, kind of learning how it was that race kind of cuts across those, those systems. Um, yeah. You know, you know, the, the municipal system is one thing that, you know, they typically ran these at a profit, right? So the, the, the town would run it, you know, so you'd have a surplus and then rather than raising property taxes on all the property owners, you would just take it out of the, take the, you know, they'd shift the money over from the electricity fund to the, to the general fund, which is, you know, a fairly regressive way to, to tax people. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, um, so, you know, there was in, you know, favored those who were owning property, which were primarily, uh, you know, the white people in the town. So, you know, as you, as I started to kind of look, I just found these patterns kind of again and again, um, in the different places I was looking. Wow. So, you know, a couple of your pieces, at least a couple of the pieces look at Rocky Mount as like your, you know, your, your place. So how'd you end up focusing on Rocky Mount? Like, what's that story? That's a great question. I was trying to remember today, actually. <laughs> um, you know, Rocky Mount. Well, a couple of things. I mean, sometimes it's it's. Uh, I think most people would say when you're doing research, you kind of you dig sort of broadly, and you just at a certain point you just find a a lot of information. Yeah, about you find that rich vein, thing. right? Yep. Yeah. And, you know, I looked in some other towns as well in my sort of broader dissertation. I there's I looked at Wilson, I looked at Kenston. Um, but there was just a lot of information about um Rocky Mount, particularly the, the municipality. Um so some of the work I did was in the uh archival work I did was in the city clerk's office where they had this basically bank vault in their in the building and and they said you know you can that go in there and look like at whatever you want oh man yeah <laughs> that's what you want <laughs> i spent a couple of weeks there uh looking at um the meeting minutes from the city council uh -huh. and that's where i found sort of every time somebody came and requested electricity and then i kind of cross-referenced that with um city directories to figure out where that person lived um and he kind of pulled that together. Um, I also did a lot of research at um, this, uh, the historical collection at the UNC libraries. And you know, I was a grad student at UNC Chapel Hill. Um, and they had a ton of stuff about 
Rocky Mount as well there. There was a big mill there. Hmm. Um, they had a bunch of collections from the mill. And, and Rocky Mount's an interesting place because it's really been kind of a, oddly, for not a big place, it's been kind of a center of power um, or the, it has produced a lot of powerful people hmm. in the state and state politics. Um, in fact, the current governor of North Carolina, Roy Cooper, is from Nash County, Rocky Mounts, right on the um, county line between Edgecombe and Nash County. Um, what kind of mills were there? Uh, uh, Tex textile. textile, yeah. Yeah, so it's right on the, it's kind of as far east as you can go. So there's like a little bit of a, a fall line there. Mm -hmm. um, so there was a small mill that also had um, some electricity production. Um, and there was a like a small mill town that was later absorbed into the city. Okay. The city overall. Uh, so it, it was an interesting place. I thought it was was sort of captured um, these kind of small town dynamics that I was seeing um, all over the eastern part of, of North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, being in South Carolina, it's it's very similar to some of these same size cities that I see see here as well. Mm hmm. You have a cool piece about uh, Rocky Mount uh, called Extending the White Way uh, that's about like street lighting there and their attempts to uh, it, adopt electric street lighting. So that was cool. Did, was that using those city records that you were finding or? Yes, that was using the city records um, to, to trace the, the Rocky Mount part of it. Um, one of the things that um, came up again and again is that they referred to these street lighting systems as the white way right. and and i thought well this is <laughs> <laughs> that means more than one thing here in the in, in, right? <laughs> yeah yeah so it it i was like well this there's got to be more to this um uh -huh. and so f to learn more about that i actually um went to an archive that's in schenectady new york which is where general electric uh was headquartered and it's that there's a museum there and they've got this really big ge archive mm -hmm. um and you know i just tried to go and find whatever i could about these street lighting um street lighting systems yeah. and found of course way more than i that i thought i would ever find um and kind of went into you know different types of illumination and how you know how the measuring it and how they were selling it and you know kind of i that was uh, an interesting kind of detour i wasn't expecting um, was the white way kind of like a package that ge was selling Yes, the the white way was a package. It included, um, I think, it included a generator. It included a system of lighting. They had all kinds of specifications about, you know, on Main Street, you need to have this this many lumens or this many light posts per 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 mile or yeah. however they measured it out. Um, there was some interesting kind of figures who were like the the GE kind of. Um, you know, developers of this, a guy named DRC Ryan, I think his name was, who mm. who you know, was going around selling these systems. And of course there was competition from other types of lighting systems. Um, but the white way, I think it was the, maybe the most successful. It was sold yeah. all over uh, the Northeast um, and Midwest and, and into the South. Um, yeah. I feel like you bump into it in electricity histories. It's just been a while since. Well, that's cool. And so tell it, how does it, how did it connect to race in, in, in the town? I mean, so yeah. it's too rich immediately right it's like well the white way means something different and you know <laughs> yeah, yeah yes so uh, well i did i did kind of two different things mm -hmm. um and thinking about rocky mount so you know it was like collecting 
these requests you know mm -hmm. where was the per where did the person live that was making the request um and um and then you know looking about whether or not the request was granted um, by the city council the all-white city council um who would say yes you get electricity or no you don't and i thought well this is a, a, a way that we can kind of think about this very directly yeah um um, so there's there's part of it looks at that with the white way, um, you know, it's thinking about how electricity was used at that time, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, so part of it is you know thinking about how parts of cities become racialized, right? So how can the main street become this place of light? night and day, you know, light, we, we've come to associate with things like safety, with, with wealth, with, um, you know, you know, all kinds of kind of improvement, pr progress. Yeah. You know, so, so certain parts of the city then become coded, I think, through the, the rollout of electricity, not just sort of individual households, but sort of these commercial districts yeah. become coded. Um, neighborhoods. I, I also looked at how the, 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 um, how the the white way or these street lighting systems were were um, you know they become so these neighborhoods become coded at the same time right so you have these sort of centers of, of white privilege you also have these places um, that are you know don't receive electricity and then sort of they can start to become well that place is dangerous you yeah, want to yeah. go there that place is where you know those people live and that's not a place that you go and so you know pretty quickly you know, some of these neighborhoods become, it becomes quite stark, um, the differences between kind of the way that electric electricity can kind of make those differences quite clear, right? Not only during the day now, but also at night, right? So you have all of this um, privilege that gets kind of accrued on in the certain parts of the city. Yeah. Wow, man. And so, um, you know, you, you wrote about the, um, I just want to make sure we hit all the kind of electricity points there too. So, um, is part of the the what you're talking about about these decisions there's this board of commissioners who's making decisions about who gets it is that what you were referring to earlier with this council yeah yeah okay. so it's 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 the county commission or the so I, well, I guess it was the city council i can't mm -hmm. remember what they were called the city commissioners or yeah something yeah at the time mm -hmm. um but yeah it was it was these people who were literally making the decisions mm -hmm. uh, about who got electricity and who didn't so late in prepping for this, just before I, I came over here, I noticed that you, uh, in some of the materials sent over, that you'd written a chapter simply called Wires. Was, what was that for? I didn't have to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I read yeah, the first okay. couple pages. I'm like, this is wild. This is good. Yeah. yeah so Wires. Okay. So um, I, uh, after I finished at UNC and before I started here at, South Carolina, I had a, a fellowship. I was a visiting fellow um, at, um, at at Lancaster University in the UK, and they had a research center that was called Demand. Um, huh. And it Demand stood for something, but it was um, it was a energy demand research center. There was a couple that the UK government funded. Um, and it was run by a geographer named Gordon Walker and a sociologist named Elizabeth Shove, um, mm. who wrote uh, Comfort, Cleanliness, and Convenience. Um, and, um, and so they had a, they were interested in energy demand. And so I came over um, and spent, 
you know, maybe eight weeks there, something like that. And I was presenting um, some of my work. And I distinctly remember uh, Elizabeth, who was the editor of the book chapter, saying, you know, this is all great. But the thing that I keep wondering is, where are the wires in this article? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> That's a really good question. Um, so, yeah. uh, so I was like, okay, yeah, where are the wires? Yeah. Um, and so I spent uh, some more kind of archival work again at the GE uh, archives okay. up in Schenectady. Um, I went back and looked at the the history of both kind of the development of transmission wires. Mm -hmm. So all the kind of insulation um, as well as household wiring um, and, you know, household wiring that kind of has this um, like anticipatory effect. Um, so, I mean, I always think of it as like, you know, no matter how big your refrigerator is, mm -hmm. you're always going to fill it up with stuff and, you know, a lot of stuff's going to go bad. Yeah. Right. Um, and I, in some ways, I think that that what GE and other you know electric appliance manufacturers, electricity companies did is they got into the building codes in a lot of houses and they started to say, okay, your wires need to be big. You know, they yeah. need to have a lot of capacity. Um, you need to have this many outlets on your wall. Um, you need to have this type of switch, uh, you know, light switch on there. The, the type of switch that we use, the kind of on-off, mm -hmm. it's known as the convenience switch. And, hmm. um, you know, it was sold uh, by, you know, you could you could just use your elbow to, to do it. Right, right, so right, right. You know, the housewife's hands are full, so she can just use her elbow to turn it off and on. Um, but I think the idea was you put you put outlets, you you wire these houses up, you put them everywhere, and pretty soon everyone's going to be using, yeah, all of them. Um, you don't you don't want to run into a situation where they can't plug something in into their house. No. Um, and then we also at the same time need to have, um, you know, the big capacity transmission wires to move electricity, um, you know, really long distances. Um, from, yeah you know, from hydro or wherever. And we're talking about transmission still, right? And moving um, renewables and so on. Um, but that was, yeah, that was kind of my detour into wires. It's uh, <laughs> a fun piece, man. It's cool. Yeah, it was really interesting, <laughs> really interesting to work on. Um, yeah. And the collection, it's in this edited book that's quite, quite interesting collection, I think. Oh, what's it called? Or what's the, I didn't have a chance uh, to cross-reference you. Called, um, you're going to have to edit this. Let me go look at my bookshelf. Real no, quick. no, no. It's okay. Don't worry about it. Don't worry. It's about called, it. I think it's called infrastructures and practice. Okay. Some it's, it's edited by Elizabeth Shove and Frank Trentman, who's a historian um, cool. in the UK someplace. One of the reasons I liked it when I was, I, um, I did, I was a research assistant to this historian of technology and business named Richard John, but between undergrad and grad school. And I, did uh, research for him in Chicago in the kind of Chicago City Council papers for his book that became Network Nation, which is about elect telegraph and telephone systems. Oh, interesting. And um, and yeah, so I was looking through all the city council stuff from the late 19th and early 20th century. And as as these systems are coming online, telephone and electricity systems and wires were a big deal for the city council because there was no standard approach 
to how you deal with this. You know, there's no kind of like right of way, you know, like all the, you know, there's no the polls. They didn't know how to think about it yet. And there was also just systems that you, like there was this, I remember this one pharmacist built his own telephone system that just ran from his office, his store to his house, which was like a couple blocks away, just so he and his wife could call back and forth in the middle of the day, right? And but like this is just like we don't that doesn't happen anymore. I mean, we obviously we don't do that, but not, that yeah. was not happening very often. Even then, you know, it wasn't like people were building. So the city council just did not know how to think about these things. Yeah, yeah, it's sort of it's amazing. I mean, I I always remember back as I was reading about wires. If if you look at the, um, I think, you know, early sort of Edison systems, he he lit. I think it was one of the Vanderbilt's house. Um, and it was this party, this big party, but but Edison had a crew of like 30 people who were running around putting out all fires, like literal <laughs> yeah, fires exactly. the whole time <laughs> Yeah, uh, because of the wires weren't insulated. They were just bare copper wires yeah. running around. Uh, <laughs> so they, yeah, they don't come out fully formed, right? These ideas. No, 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 no. Yeah. I mean, that's the other, the other joke I like to make with my students is like, you know, we have fuses, but they didn't have fuses initially. That was like something they figured out. And we, they could have, I mean, learning how to use an electricity system so you don't overload it could have been something we were trained of as children, right? But we decided yeah. to automate that. Like, it was better not to have to think about that. Fuses That's are right. way better than having to think about what's happening with the load all the time, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> like, why does this keep turning off? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so your, your work has shifted over time and you kind of have a lot of different things going on. So, you know, what are you up to these days and kind of like where, yeah, where are you at with things? So I think the one, yeah, I have shifted a lot, uh, just, I think as, as sort of interests and opportunities have, yeah. have taken me in different, um, directions. Um, uh, but I think the, the common theme has primarily been, uh, questions of energy. And then I think its relationship to questions of inequality, mm-hmm. um, I think has been sort of the driving, uh, way, uh, you know, the, the big project that I'm, uh, maybe I'll say two thirds of the way finished with right now is a project that's looking at, um, how the finance sector is interacting with the energy transition, maybe driving the energy transition, or at least, at least shaping it. Um, and, the way that I, I came to this was, uh, I don't know, it was probably five or six years ago. I'd been teaching energy classes for a while, felt like I knew everything, but, you know, I've had been doing all this research, historical research on the electricity sector. And then I kind of had to become honest with myself and realize that I didn't totally understand uh, how it worked, um, mm-hmm. particularly this mix of sort of regulated and deregulated systems um, that we have, you know, all the different markets, all the acronyms, all the sort of thousands of things that are out there. Yeah. Um, so I, I just kind of set in mind that I was going to try to actually figure it out. Um, then I had a, a kind of spark uh, of a, an idea where I was working on a class and um, an economic geography class and working with one of the librarians here. And they um, showed me these these business databases where you could look at um, equities analyst reports So people who say you should buy this stock or you yeah, should buy yeah. that stock. And I was looking at one for NextEra Energy, Florida-based company that owns Florida Power and Light, uh, is also the, the world's largest owner of uh, renewable energy. Hmm. 
at the time, it had also just been revealed that they had been behind a ballot initiative in Florida um, that was trying to get people to vote against um, allow, you know, being allowed to put rooftop solar on your house. Yeah, they don't want that, man. <laughs> yeah. So in my mind, I was like, this is weird. You know, yeah. you have the world's largest owner of, of renewable energy convincing people to vote against the ability to use solar energy on their own house. Yeah. And I was just like, this doesn't make sense until, and this is, I mean, it's somewhat obvious, um, as I was reading this analyst report, and they don't care, right? That all they want to know is, is this company going to be successful or are they right. going to be profitable? They said they caught some flack for this, but in the end, it's good for them. Huh. Um, because, you know, they'll stay in control of, of, of their electricity production. And that was sort of when the light bulb went off in my head and said, well, maybe if we were to start with, you know, these financial people who are only interested in kind of, you know, the sort of profitability really of, of the electricity system, maybe then we can make sense of how it's changing or how it's not changing. Um, and so that was sort of the starting point. Um, and I got some funding um, from the National Science Foundation to do the work. Um, and I've been working on it for the last few years. And some of it's been historical, looking at um, contemporaries of Enron uh, okay. during the deregulation in the late 1990s. Um, some of it's been more contemporary, uh, doing a lot of interviews with um, people that work in the private equity industry, for example, wow. and how they've started to invest in solar. Um, so I've got, it's, you know, ideally going to be a book project, um, working on all that right now. Cool, man. That sounds great. Yeah. So, um, um, that's what I'm kind of primarily working on is getting that finished, getting that out for review. Uh, well, so. good luck. You'll have to, we'll definitely have to have you on when that comes out. That sounds wonderful. Yeah, well, let's just hope it comes out. <laughs> <laughs> Fingers crossed. I'll send you good yeah. vibes, man. Yeah, I appreciate that. <laughs> Connor, this has been great. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Okay, yeah, thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast. You can reach us with questions, comments, and suggestions at leevinsel.com at gmail.com or by following me on Twitter at STS underscore news or on YouTube at People's Things. Our podcast is distributed by the New Books Network, the leading platform for academic podcasts, so that you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Peoples and Things, like most things in this world, depends on the work of many people. I want to thank my brother, Jake Vinsel for writing the music for the show. I want to thank my buddy, Juliana Castro, for designing the logos for the podcast. You can check out her work at julianacastro.co. Joe Fort is the producer for the podcast, and Mandy Lamb is the production assistant. This podcast and other Peoples and Things programming are produced in affiliation with Virginia Tech Publishing and supported by the Center for Humanities and the University Libraries at Virginia Tech. For information about other podcasts from Virginia Tech Publishing, visit publishing.vt.edu. For the entire Peoples and Things team, I am Lee Vinsel. And most importantly, I want to thank you for listening. Thanks.